Hebrews chapter 2. For this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away from it. For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, and every transgression and disobedience received a just penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. God also testifying with them, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Almighty Father God, as we assemble today, Lord, in this building, as those who are made anew in Christ, we being the church, we come, Lord, to worship you, to offer praise and honor, and to ascribe the glory to you which belongs to you, which is inherent. Lord, we come to exalt the name of Jesus Christ above all names. We come to seek Christ in the scriptures, for we know that every passage, every line, every word focuses upon Christ, that he is the central message of every book of our Bible, or that we may read this today. Our prayer is that as we do, that you would apply these things to our life through the power of your Holy Spirit, and that you would open our eyes, Lord, to see what is not seen by the natural man, but those things which are seen because of the Spirit who lives within. Lord, our prayer is that if there be some today that know not the Christ of this Bible, Lord, that you would bring a knowledge, a saving knowledge of who you are and who he is and what he has done upon Calvary's cross so that they too might worship and praise and honor you. Lord, that we may go forth with joy in serving you as you've prescribed by your word. Lord, that we may come to an intimate relationship with you and that we would not stray from the message that we've heard, but that we would embrace it and always look for that message every time that we open your scriptures. Lord, would you show us this morning a great measure of grace and mercy and reveal these truths to us in your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Verse 5, for he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. This is a very interesting point that we've come to in chapter 2 because we'll see some things that we haven't noticed in weeks past. Last week we studied verse 4 from Hebrews chapter 2 and in it we see the testimony of God the Father as this testimony is, in fact, concerning the Son who is Lord. This Lord being Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, the Son of David, and all of the other titles that we know belong to Jesus and only to Him. And this is the testimony concerning Him. This is the reality that God uh, accredits all that has been done to Jesus Christ, His Son, being the one who has come and taken on flesh, but the one who has also lived from eternity till eternity to come. And so this is the Christ 
whom we serve. This is the Christ who is able to save. And this testimony is for no other person than fallen man. This isn't for the angels. This testimony concerning Christ isn't for any creature other than human beings because it is applied to the life of human beings who are given a great measure of faith if they come to believe in this Christ. That's how this, though it was originally written, an epistle to the Hebrew people, this is how it applies to us because it is the very same message that belonged to the Jews that Peter would proclaim, that Paul would proclaim to the Gentiles. It is the saving message of Jesus Christ. It is knowledge of the one true Jesus Christ. As we ponder upon this testimony for fallen man, as we ponder upon the truth and the reality and this great mystery that is revealed in Christ, we also must ponder upon the natural condition of man. For if we do not come to an understanding of who we are apart from Christ, we cannot come to an understanding of what Christ has done for us upon the cross. So we must in fact deal with the depravity of man seeing that there is an ultimate need for salvation. <clears throat> and it's very interesting that even the old hymn writers understood that man did not have multiple issues. Man did not have multiple needs. Though we see that today, we, we sometimes say that, oh, there's a person in need. They need money. They need food. They need shelter. The truth is that the spiritual man sees only one need, and that is the need for a Savior. This is the message that we received this morning. This is that ultimate depravity. A revealing of such a desperate need for reconciliation to God. And in this message, it would be incomplete if it were not fulfilled by Christ all of the law. And if it were not made perfect, that being human beings who were sinful, who had uh, heaped up condemnation for themselves. So as we sin against God, we see that the result is sin. The result is death. But that the message is also one of life. Death is coming whether you hear the message of Christ or not. Whether you receive the truth of who Christ is and what he has done. Death is coming. But without this message there is no salvation. Without the spoken word of Christ. Without the word given to the prophets and the fathers of church past. The one true universal church. Catholic, not Roman Catholic. This is the only message of salvation. But the message doesn't really end there. It doesn't end with the Hebrew people either. It doesn't end with the original recipients of this letter. But it's most relevant and its application is for us today as the modern professing church. It's for mere mortal men. This will be interesting to, to remind yourselves, maybe write this down, the message given of Jesus Christ is for mere mortal man. And that will play into what we come to understand as we consider Christ in lieu of angels, angelic created being, that the message isn't for Christ. The saving message of the Messiah wasn't to be applied to Jesus, but he would be the fulfillment of that message. And we'll see the irony 
uh, towards the Hebrew people as it is submitted to them this message they, they had received in times past by the angels but is now proclaimed by the blood of Christ and his sacrifice upon Calvary's cross and we see its relevant application. This is for every man since Adam. We have seen throughout of our, our study in Hebrews chapter 1 the supremacy of Christ, the sufficiency of Christ, the exaltation of Christ, Him being the only begotten Son of God, Him being the Messiah that was spoken of from the very beginning, Him being in chapter 1 compared to, for lack of a better term, to the angelic being. And that really is still the focus of the text today, that Christ is still being contrasted to angelic beings because the Hebrew people had a, uh, a certain disposition to, to worship angels or to almost worship angels, either of which, which would be sinful. But so this is the idea that we see who the Christ is from verse 1 in Hebrews chapter 1 and throughout chapter 2. But what we find ourselves in this morning as we come to the, the fourth verse ending last week and then we pick up with verse 5, we see that the, the text was broken from chapter 1 to chapter 2 Right there in the middle, beginning with uh, verse 1 in chapter 2 to 4, we see an urgent message that breaks up the relationship between chapter 1 and chapter 2 so that it is indeed continued after the warning is given. And we'll see this to come. But what we have is this comparison that tells us and shows us that Christ is supreme, that Christ is better. Uh, the Father God is confirming to us the authority by which Jesus Christ is to rule. And what is he to rule? Who is he to rule? He is to rule everything because everything has been created by the word of his power. The angels are in fact a lesser being of lesser value for we know that if angels were perfect, then there could be no fallen angel. So we can't lump them all into one category. Therefore, they can be no being that is worshiped as Christ is because Christ is deity. Christ is God. And what we have here is God the Father confirming these things for us. And then we have this significant warning that I spoke of. It's in the beginning of chapter 2. If you look to verse 1, it says, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard so that we do not drift away. The warning here. In the middle of this letter is to be careful not to stray. And the warning isn't left there, but there is within it a remedy. And the remedy is to pay much closer attention to the message. This message is the message that we call the gospel. This is the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the completion of what God has had to say in the prophets in times past. Those prophets and priests who were but mere moral man, who were sinful man, who came and spoke the message of God but had sin. And now there is one who has come who is prophet, priest, and king and who is without sin. And he relays the message of God the Father and he is the message. He is the subject. He's not only the messenger, but he is the Savior. And so this is what we have. The message coming from God 
through the person of God, being God the Father transmitting this through the power of the Holy Spirit in times past under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as it is given for Scripture. And then we see Christ coming, walking according to the Spirit, the Spirit descending upon Christ, Christ being very God, and He speaking the message of salvation that is through Him and through Him alone, the Son of Man. And this is what Christ has proclaimed. The remedy, pay much closer attention. And oftentimes this is our declaration. But I say to all who hear the message, if this is ineffectual to you, which it will be, be careful. Because it's ineffectual unless you pay the greatest attention not to the message itself, but to the message and who it proclaims. Many will say, I believe in this Lord. Many will pay attention to the message. Many will quote the scriptures. Many will repeat the gospel of Jesus Christ, but will not live the gospel of Jesus Christ. Will not attend to the commands of Jesus himself. Will not have love for the one whom the message speaks about. And there lies the danger that the professing church will contain within its walls a group of people who have heard the message but are not looking to the messenger. They're not looking to the subject. They're not looking to the Savior. This is why he says, many will say, Lord, Lord. They've heard the message. They repeat the message, but they don't live the message or follow the messenger. And they don't bow the knee to the Christ who is Lord, whether you like it or not. This is the danger This is how the message can be given, but ineffectual. This is why we must pray for those who have not yet tasted of the goodness of the Lord, who have heard but not tasted. Those who repeat but don't live. Again, the statement boldly sounded that if the words were counted as true as they were received by the angels, then how much more so are they to be received as truthful as they come at the lips of the very God-man Jesus Christ, the one whom God now speaks through, a mediation in which there is a monopoly, in which the messenger monopolizes the mediation. Jesus Christ has the monopoly upon the words coming from God. God no longer speaks unless it be through the works of Christ. This is what we're seeing this morning. Him by whom all things were made that have come into existence. He is the messenger. He is the subject. He is the Savior. So what we have here is the only true testimony concerning the Savior. The testimony that comes by the very mouth of God and that the Father sends the Son to save, to redeem a people. And the Son proclaims that which is the will of God that by his very own mouth he preaches his self as sacrifice, his self as Lamb of God. That to know the Father you must know me, he says. We must express faith in Christ, and not only by lips, but in heart, by word and in deed, so that we do not deceive ourselves. And this is the true testimony concerning the Savior. It's substantiated, as we see in verse 4, by wonders 
and signs and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit, it says. The greatest of which we have recorded before us. We haven't been left out. We we haven't been cheated. And that in times past there were signs and wonders and miracles and spiritual gifts which we know that some today have ceased. We haven't been cheated, but we have a record of all of these things. That even the people who received the gifts did not see to the fullest extent as we're able to see in the Word of God today just how God has moved and used His people so that the message of Christ may continue and that it may continue to be effectual as He calls and draws men to Himself. It's recorded here in this collection of books. It's a message that brings forth a change, brings forth reconciliation, justification, sanctification, all of this by the power of salvation through repentant faith in Jesus Christ. They cannot be separated. Repentance and faith. There is no true faith unless it is accompanied by repentance. There must be a turning. There must be a change. And the change is brought on by receiving Christ, by receiving the Holy Spirit, by being made regenerate. By the power of God, not anything that man would desire or that he would earn, but lest it be only a grace of God. This is the very purpose of the Gospels. Even John ends in chapter 20 by saying this is the reason that he's written what he has written. Not that he has contained everything that Jesus had done, but, but by seeing the things and hearing the accounts of Christ that you may have life in his name, believing in Him as the Son of God and as the Messiah who is prophesied from the very beginning, from the very first prophet. This is the purpose. So that by the grace of the Almighty God and in the person of Jesus Christ, you may have salvation. For by His blood are we washed white as snow. From this message, we receive salvation it isn't from good works it isn't from deeds is it it isn't from uh descendant descendancy from abraham it isn't from any type of bloodline or anything else that you can muster up or think that would make you righteous to turn from this message the warning that we have pay much closer attention tells us that to turn from this message, to mock this message, to neglect this message, to belittle this message, or to brush it off or forget about it between Sunday and Wednesday services, this would be a great indicator of our eternal destiny that we have strayed. For the gospel is not just for the Sabbath day, if you observe a Sunday Sabbath. It's not just for Wednesday. It's not just for uh, church quote-unquote, meetings. But the gospel is for every day. It's for every breath. It is by the gospel that every breath is made possible. It is by the gospel that every breath of, of the life of the believer be made one that is joyful in the work that he has done. And then we somehow arrive this morning to verse 5, and it says, For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. There's the truth. The world to come concerning which we are speaking. The message of Jesus Christ is not a powerful message. It's not a saving message unless it is speaking of a world to come. 
unless it is speaking of a true resurrection, unless it is speaking of a life that is conquering death, that which no mere mortal man could do. So we start with four, he did not subject to angels. Back again, we go to the first chapter as we see the supremacy of Christ. We do not want to forget the exaltation of Christ and the emphasis that the Father has placed in this intimate conversation that we see in chapter 1. And we would do well to remember, as I said in opening, that the modern breaks in the text man placed in there so that it would be easy to find a verse so that we could all come to the same scripture together when originally this was actually just a single letter. The intent to focus on the express deity and the exaltation belonging to Christ, which for the first four verses previous had been revealed through the consequences of heeding no truth of Christ and his authority and dominion. This is the warning. Consider it this way. Right smack in the middle uh, from verse 14 in chapter 1 until 5 is the four verses that says, For this reason we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard. For if the word spoken through angels prove unalterable in every transgression a penalty, how will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And then it speaks of the testimony given of God. But consider it this way. If the warning was not in the middle, the the penman under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit said, I must stop here and give a great warning to what I am saying both before and after. So read it this way. God spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions in many ways in these last days has spoken to us in His Son whom He appointed heir of all things through whom also He made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature and upholds all things by the word of His power. When He had made purification of sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much better than the angels, as He has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did He ever say, You are My Son, today I have begotten you, and again I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, Who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire? But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And the righteous scepter is the scepter of his kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And... You, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up like a garment. They will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? And then verse 5. For he did not subject the angels to the world to come concerning which we are speaking. You see how those flow so well together? The, The warning is in the middle. But if you take the warning out, not to dismiss it, but to see the flow of the conversation. That he's continually proclaiming the deity and the exaltation and the supremacy of Christ. And how he is not inferior 
to angelic being. How he is not to be revered as second class. How that God has spoken only through Jesus Christ. And here we have the meshing of the text. And in it a great warning. We see this many times. Even with John. That there would be a message of the Savior. And in it a heed. He brood of vipers. Who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come? The wrath of God. And then continuing again with the message of Jesus Christ. This is the gospel that we start with Jesus. That we have a warning if we have not the Christ. And then again the message of the gospel. This is how our preaching must also be. That it be centered with Christ. And that then we be reminded for a short time. Some we'll call it four verses of the, the weight of sin and the reality of death and the wrath of God, and then again to remind ourselves of Jesus Christ. This is exactly what is done in verse 5. And it would be, in fact, out of order for any other man to be in precise control over creation. And in the weeks to come, this will be revealed. That it could not be angels to whom the world is subjected. It cannot be. That would be out of order. It would be mistaken. It wouldn't make any sense. I also submit to you as we consider this that the angels can have really no understanding of the gospel the bible is very clear that they marvel at the message of the gospel they marvel at salvation and how can we know it's true simply by this because if angels understood the message of the gospel then satan would have never attempted to overthrow god because he would know he can't make god out to be a liar he couldn't overthrow God. He couldn't make God's plan somehow be foiled. He couldn't make man eat of the fruit and die and then God's plan to be glorified forever by man be somehow spoiled. The truth is that the angels cannot comprehend the message of salvation. They simply are ministering spirits. And again, I'll submit this to you. As Christ is tempted, we see that the angels come and they minister to Christ. Are they ministering the gospel? Well, the truth is, I, I really don't think they are. Why? Because the gospel wouldn't save Christ. Christ is the gospel. Christ is the one who is saving. They're working for Christ. For the benefit of man that he would receive the gospel and that in it he would be changed and realize salvation. So this is what verse 5 is about. It's about completing the idea and the supremacy of Christ in our minds that we would be reminded at every step in our spiritual walk that Christ is sufficient, that Christ is supreme and that no angel could do what Christ has done and no angel is higher than Christ. This is the point of true authenticity for Bible-believing disciples and Christians. The Christ that we are serving is both fully God and fully man, truly God and truly man. And for this reason, therefore, he is able to serve as final prophet, final priest, final king. And if that isn't enough, go back and say only prophet only priest and only king because those were just before him a foreshadow of the true prophet, the true priest, 
the true king. And we see that pattern throughout uh, this particular epistle, most certainly in the, in the first chapter. Quite simply, this is how we would put it, that no other being fits the bill. No other being can complete salvation. No other being can create and then save that creation. No other being can bring a message of salvation lest he be commissioned by the one and only Jesus Christ lest the message come by the lips, by the works, by the name of Jesus Christ. No other is capable and I'll submit to you that no other is willing. You serve one of two masters. You serve your Father who is in heaven. You serve Jesus Christ. The Lord our God is one. Or you serve your Father, the devil. This is not a fact that we should simply dismiss. But I say this because... If you serve not Christ, Satan is not willing or able to save you. Serving your flesh is not willing or able to save you. Following a false, watered-down version of Jesus is to follow one who is not capable or willing to save. This is authenticity. For this reason... Therefore, Christ is able to serve as prophet, priest, and king. And we need no other than him. We always have needed Christ. And the point of the text, as we see the interruption and the warning in the middle, is that we have always needed Christ and that we will always continue to need Christ. If you rely not upon Christ, you have no religion. If you have, quote-unquote, been saved and you no longer need Christ then you have no salvation. You have no true religion. You have no grasp of the gospel message. For it is unending. This is why we dare not to forsake such a great salvation as it is written. Herein lies our purpose during this meeting of those whom we call the church today that we worship and glorify this Savior who is depicted throughout every line and every text and that we learn each day as we remind ourselves of His fulfillment of our ultimate need. Notice what I said there. Christ didn't fulfill His needs, but He fulfilled ours. I remember several years ago, some of you have heard me tell the story but I had a sales call and I don't even remember what it was about at the at the shop and the lady went on to tell me uh, they were offering a loan and she said do you need a loan and I said ma'am do you know what kind of business you called we offer our finances here to those who need a loan and she says well everybody needs some help even Jesus needed help to which I responded, who did Jesus need help from? And she says, the disciples. And I was quite amazed because I'd never heard anybody say that. I'd never heard even, even the cults say something like that. And so I asked the lady, I said, where do you go to church? She said, well, I'm Baptist. What are you? And I said, you need to talk to your pastor because you're not Baptist. The fact is that Jesus didn't come because he needed us. 
The message of the gospel isn't so that God can receive some glory that he doesn't already have. The truth of the gospel is that Jesus has come in the flesh to serve as the sufficient Lamb of God to pay the sin debt for man to be that propitiation which he is uh, accredited with, which he has accomplished upon Calvary's cross because it is for you and for I. For no one else, not for himself. He does not cease to be God if creation somehow is sinful or if creation passes away the Lord your God will remain and the text is very clear with that but this is the message of the gospel we always have needed Christ we always need to be reminded of the price paid for our salvation that is the purpose that we see our need today the Hebrew people might have been tempted and this is why the letter is written the way that it is. They might be a tempt, might have been tempted to say that he, the Messiah, was inferior to angelic being. They didn't understand Christ's fulfillment of the scriptures. After all, you have to consider Psalm eight five. They would have been familiar. It says, "You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor." But what they would have done is taken this out of context. And, and it's not such a stretch of the imagination to see that because we see people today even take many what we would call very easy texts to understand and they take it completely out of context and apply it to something that it doesn't apply to. But it was a misunderstanding that Christ being made a little lower than the angels. And I would say that the, the remedy for this situation and for this understanding must be uh, completed, must be understood in light of Philippians chapter 2. We do this because we do not take one text and isogeet it to make it say what we want to, but we have to consider it in lieu of all of the text, all of Scripture as it all speaks of Christ. Philippians chapter 2 says, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from self, selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among you which is Yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. There's our first indicator. And it goes on to say this, as he is made lower than the angels, consider this, but emptied himself by his own power, by his own authority, by his own person, emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. He wasn't ordered. He wasn't made. He wasn't stripped. He wasn't shackled and enchained and in slavery to someone, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Here he is existing before the incarnation. It says, he then being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Say this, consider every person you've ever met, consider every being whom has humbled themselves, who is able, who is willing 
Who delights in humbling their self? No other man except Jesus Christ could do these things, and it's because he is not mere man, but he is also God existing eternally before creation. It goes on to say and express the truths that we gather from Hebrews chapter 1 and 2. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I think it's pretty clear where angels stand in lieu of Jesus Christ. He is the highest. They are but mere servants. Christ in this passage only laid aside what was rightfully his to begin with. He was never stripped of his deity by the Father. His throne and his rule was never rescinded by another, by one who is greater than him, for there is not one. For it belongs to Christ, the power to rule, the authority to rule, the jurisdiction over which he rules. It belongs to him from eternity past to eternity future. It's always been Christ. In no way could our Christ ever be inferior to anyone or to any being, even that of an angel. Humility is not in this text a sign of inferiority, nor should it be seen as such. The problem was and is today still that too much honor and respect is given in the case of angels. Angels who didn't place themselves in their position, nor can they by their own status be kept in any certain position, But instead, even they are upheld by the sovereign will of Jesus Christ and his obedience to the Father. It says, For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. Now we have to consider Hebrews chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 2 and every other passage in the Bible is concerning salvation and Christ and in Christ alone. And here it says, the world to come concerning which we're speaking. The truth is that the world in any form is not subject to the terms and conditions of angelic being, but they are still those ministering spirits as they were described in previous passages. We've seen it, seen it in weeks past, and it's the fact that the angels are still doing work, work for their master, Lord Jesus Christ, for all find themselves under his dominion. It really wouldn't make sense that the created world be under subjection to angels while the humans in it are under God. How can we then serve two masters if that's the case, if the angels naturally had some dominion or they had some authority or power? The fact is that they serve Christ and they worship and they glorify as man is commanded to serve and worship and glorify Christ. The opposite, rather, is true that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is commanding all and permitting only what is the will of the Father and what He would allow. Those things being uh, two wills, 
of the two persons of God that are perfectly harmonious as the two are even one. My will is to do the will of the Father who sent me. doesn't get any clearer than that. The angels have no control over mankind, but are sent and have always been sent as ministers. Sent by God, sent by Christ, in order to minister to those who belong to Him. This is perseverance. This is the truth that Christ is keeping those who belong to Him. This is the truth that no man may be snatched from His hand because even as He is separated, so it seems, as He is seated at the right hand, He has sent His Spirit as a seal and that He is still sending His servants to minister to those until He returns to take them back. And it says this is that which is concerning which we're speaking. The reign of Christ. Now, you can get into all kinds of eschatology uh, with this verse and you can say that it speaks of this particular time or dispensation or you can say that it applies to the other but I would say that this is to be expounded upon as the reign of Christ that is and is to come. Why do I say that it's not only speaking of that that is is to come in eternity, but it is speaking even of now because the truth is that if the gospel of Jesus Christ has been effectual, Christ is not reigning sometime in the future, but He is reigning now. If you serve Jesus Christ, if you're truly a disciple, He is ordering your steps. He's ordering your words. And for this reason, I think that it applies both now and into the future that this is the, is the world to come that which we are speaking of now. And this is concerning that. And nothing more, nothing less, because that is also the truth of the gospel. That if Jesus Christ has gone to the cross and has truly died for your sins, if He has truly paid the sin debt that you owe, and now you belong to Him, and you serve Him, and you joyfully serve Him, and you love to keep His commandments, and you want to see the the proliferation of His gospel, you want to see the church grow, you want to see people worship and glorify Christ, That's what we're speaking of now. That's what the gospel does. It says, sinful man, there is this destruction, verses 1 through 4. So great a salvation, we better not neglect it. There is this wrath of God to come. Unless you believe in the Christ that is exalted in the first chapter and the one that we begin to speak of here again in verse 5, the one who was confirmed by signs and miracles and wonders, this is him. And we're talking concerning Him because you were facing certain death, the just penalty of sin, as you committed iniquity against God. But because of Him, He has sent His Son. He's taken on flesh. He is the eternal God, made man, and now He has gone to the cross, an innocent man, keeping and fulfilling the entire law that you could not fulfill. And because of that, He has gone to this cross and He's been found guilty when He, in fact, is not guilty. Uh, Men took Him and placed upon Him burdens which they themselves could not hold, that they could not uplift, that they could not stand under. And they crucified the Christ. And He was dead, buried, and resurrected under the power of the Spirit, under His own power, under the authority of God the Father, all uh, accredited with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then He appears 
as Sean spoke about this morning, to the 500 over, and then to his disciples, and then he's ascended, and it represents his victory over death, which is a reality for those who trust and have faith in him that they too will have victory over death. And there, this is how it would apply as that world to come. Because the hope that we have in Christ is not that somehow we will have fruitful endeavors upon this earth, that we would have wonderful finances and the greatest of food and the biggest of houses and the greatest of cars. But the truth is that our treasure is in heaven, that world which is to come. The world that was described back in Hebrews chapter 1. The resurrection that we have that follows the resurrection that Christ had. The life that continued where death has no longer its sting. This is the message of the gospel. This is the hope that we shall not just have what we want here on this earth. Nothing could be further from the truth. But as Sean said, we'll have trials. We'll have temptations. We'll have failures. But we'll ever lean upon the cross and trust in the name of Christ because he has something better. He has something greater. I don't know about you. I mean, everybody is, wants some of the things that the world has to offer. The Lord made them, and there, there are certainly some wonderful things to be had on this earth. But we really should, with introspection, look at ourselves and our desires and say, is it that we desire these things that will pass away? These things that were created for men. The trees, the animals that we would eat, that we would have shelter, that we would have food. These things that will pass away or do we desire an eternal inheritance that wasn't created for man, but that has always existed in the person of Christ. That's the truth of the gospel. That's the truth of Hebrews chapter 2 as it continues to remind us of Christ. And so this morning, it would be wonderful. Actually, it's afternoon now. It would be wonderful for everyone in the room to ask themselves, we've heard the message. Do we believe the message? And if we believe the message of Jesus Christ, that He alone is sufficient to save us, if our sin debt truly does bring death and we believe that we may have life in the name of Christ, do we submit to Christ's authority? Do we wake up in submission? Do we go to bed in submission? Do we joy and find comfort in that we have one who rules over us, that we do have a head, that we're not only accountable to ourselves, but we are accountable to God and to the body of Christ, the, the church. Is that something that you find wonderful or do you despise it? Either way, it would be great to, to understand both of those things. To be indifferent would be very devastating, but to find yourselves in humble submission to Christ, it is a wonderful thing that we may worship and praise and honor Him, but to see truly if we not be in submission to Christ, praise the Lord because there He is working. There is His Spirit making known the truths of Christ and the works of salvation that it has already been accomplished. And if you have any questions concerning Christ,
concerning salvation, the leadership of the church would always like to make themselves available. We can't save you. Wouldn't want us to save you because you'd end up going back to hell. That's the truth. There's nothing that we can say. There's not a prayer that we can say to make you safe. But what we do have is the message of Christ. And it is enough. And for those who are saved and have uh, a trouble not sharing the gospel but proclaiming the gospel. If you know enough to be saved, you know enough to bring the true message of salvation to others. And it's a command. So let us go before the Lord and ask Him to bless our time in the Scriptures. <coughs> Father, as we come before You once again, we thank You that we may look in the mirror, Lord. We may look to Your law and see that we have brought upon ourselves captivity to sin. And that that's not the worst part. God, that without your son Jesus Christ, everyone in this room, everyone who has ever been born, everyone without Christ would suffer an eternity in hell, a real place, one with unquenchable fires, no joy, no happiness, no love. But God, because of your Son, Jesus Christ, we may trust and we may have faith, Lord, and that our lives may be turned around because without Christ we're never satisfied. But there is satisfaction in the gospel. The gospel is satisfaction. Most importantly, it is satisfaction of the dead of sin. To tell us die. It is finished. That everything. That we owed. Has been paid by Christ. A debt that is truly. Satisfied. And for it. Lord. May you make us. To be obedient. May you cause us to desire your word. Lord let us not assemble here. Expecting. To be fed on Sundays or Wednesdays, when in fact our own appetites reveal the truth that we should be hungry every moment for those things that are spiritual. Lord, let us find ourselves in your word and let that word not be void of your son Jesus Christ and his application to our lives. Lord, we thank you and praise you and love you, Lord. We ask that you would bless uh, the word this morning, the reading and the hearing of your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.